And now I will uh, welcome uh, Chris Bernicki. He is the CEO of ABS and Martin Stopford. I don't think I need to uh, say anything more, but I have uh, a request uh, to Martin. Martin, if you don't mind, last time that uh, we had you here on the panel, we put the house on fire, if you remember. <laughs> yeah, yes. Are you, are you planning the same thing again this time? So uh, we're not planning the same thing, but uh, you, know, you, you always put uh, the house on fire in a good way because you have amazing insights. So Chris and uh, Martin, thank you so much for being with us. Delighted and privileged to really have um, the two of you. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you for your support uh, yeah. for the forum. I mean, this time, everybody, we all had to leave and nobody came back. <laughs> so if you all get up and leave anyway, that's your choice. <laughs> <laughs> Good. So, we're going to have some fun. We uh, well, actually, we've already we already did the discussion while we were having coffee. So I think we can do something else now. You know, <laughs> it's um, there's, there's, there's so many things um, going on at the moment, isn't there? Really. You know, I. I would say I'll kick it off uh, kind of from more, or from my view. I mean, we are, it's, it's very exciting. We're, we're obviously living in a time of uncertainty. The industry is really going to have to figure out how to make uncertainty their friend and embrace change. But we're all living essentially in the early innings, I think, of a decade of change. Um, and I think that's really, to some extent, uh, you know, what we're trying to rationalize and trying to figure out. Because when you look at the calculus, to get to net zero by 2050, and I do need to put in a plug and congratulate IMO for moving us forward and uh, giving us some clarity and getting us into the zip code of net zero by 2050. Um, they have given us as an industry something to begin to look forward to, to invest in, especially with respect to the signposts along the way. But the challenge is still there, it's a tough putt. When you look at the macro challenge to get to net zero at 2050, you're looking at a world where there's 70% of zero carbon fuels, which means you need 10 times more renewable energy than you have now, and, 30, and about a 30% of carbon neutral fuels, which means you need probably about 100 times more carbon capture. So that in itself is a, is a real, real challenge. And when you look at the micro level, at the deck plate level, you look at essentially that what the ship owners are facing. They have basically, their problem is of course 70% of the fuel relative is, is part of the problem. Then you got about 15% for energy efficiency and 15% for data optimization and performance. So the 30% is what we can really begin to control now as we kind of move forward. And then, so now the story is how do you build the bridge between kind of the macro industry calculus and what the what the, uh, you know, what the owners are seeing here. And of course, we're gonna talk about that. That story has many chapters. It's got a technology chapter, it's got a people chapter, uh, it's got a timeline, it's got different types of relationships forming, different type of uh, uh, languages being developed. So I think at the end of the day, that's why we innovate, because we have to basically be in a position to manage this change. Uh, I I just completely agree with the the fact that I mean you start off with IMO setting goals, but in fact IMO has no resources at all to speak of, 
And in the end, it's going to be the companies who are in the sort of true governance role of, um, uh, of making this change happen. And I, I suppose that where I start from this is to say, well, you know, we've come out of, it's not really 10 years, Chris, it's, it's 50 years. In fact, it's almost exactly 50 years since the first oil crisis. On Yom Kippur War was October the 6th, 1973. That was 50 years ago. And that set off 25 years when the industry completely changed and went from time charters, everyone, all the tankers are on time charter, to everybody in the spot market. And you couldn't give away a VLCC. And so, I mean, I think in a way, um, and that was a dramatic change as we adapted to ex fairly expensive fossil fuels. But now we're going into another period where... No fossil fuels. I mean, we built, for 30 years, we built a, an industry which is 98% fossil fuels. Well, it, it's, it's, a, Mark, it's a dimensional industry. Remember, up until now, it was basically an industry of one fuel, and quite frankly, ships were designed for one speed and one draft. Okay, now we're moving to a different world, a dimensional uh, the dimensionality of the industry is going to change. I mean, when you look at net zero uh, at 2050, I will tell you, okay, and I'm an engineer by background, I'll put this in kind of technical terms, it is thermodynamically possible, but I think it's kinetically challenging because it's the pace and speed that, uh, that's going to happen. But I think the challenge now is how to handle the boundary conditions because the boundary conditions drive change and the pace of change and the kind of the kinetics of, of us. And the way I see it from, from where I sit, and, and I, you know, again, you're talking about a naval architect uh, looking at it, there's three big boundary conditions. Safety, availability and scalability of fuels, and infrastructure. And so the questions really become now in this dimensional world where things change, how does the, and by the way, of those three boundary conditions, infrastructure and, and availability and availability of fuel have nothing to do with the owner. They're actually outside of our industry. So, you know, you can begin to see uh, it is now kind of a different world going forward than even the last 50 years. I, well, uh, that's exactly the point. And the, the big question is what shipping companies are supposed to be doing with this because the last 30 years, spot markets, you know, you put your ship, you bought your ship, and it was probably a pretty well the same as the last one, just a little bit bigger. And then you move down um, the road a bit, and you, um, you do a bit of maintenance. You, do, you arbitrage a little bit off um, sale and purchase markets. And probably, I mean, the rule of thumb, it used to be one to one and a half people in the office for every ship at sea. Uh, for bulk shipping, and obviously more for liners because you've got an admin. Um, and that is almost nothing. And on the whole, not only was that the situation, that you had very few, very little critical mass on shore to do technical things. Uh, I mean, not like the old days of liner companies where, you know, Marshall Meek, who designed the container ships, um, had 15 naval architects working for him, you know? Um, but you, not only a lack of technical resources, but you've actually 
um, got a situation where on the whole the people on the ships don't get on that well with the people in the office, you know, who never do anything. So how are you going to get, I, I mean, is that, is that a fair perception? I mean, of the industry, uh, and, and my last point on this is the reason it's like that is not because people want to, it's because the freight rates don't pay for it. Yeah. I mean, the freight rates give you 1% over LIBOR taking the good times with the bad times. So how are we going to pay for this? And are the companies going to be able to, if they put in lots of technical resources, what happens? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a great question. I mean, when I look at kind of the world, I, I kind of see three swim lanes of owners. You know, you see the, uh, the clearly what we've seen, you see the first movers, uh, the risk takers. Uh, then you have a second swim lane of what I call fast followers, companies that are strategically patient, kind of watching, maybe doing some experimenting, some piloting, and so forth. And then there's a whole third category of doing nothing. And when, I, when you look at the average age of a shipping company, okay, which is average size is about five ships or less, I would, be, I would not be surprised if there are a lot more in that third category. Um, than are in the, in, this, in the second and the first. And so when you look at, again, what shipping companies can control and what they can't control, if you go back to that 70-30 model that I talked about, okay, 70% is the fuel, I'm sure we'll be talking about that in terms of readiness and so forth. There's 30% that shipping companies in general can control. If about 15% of that is uh, decisions relative to energy retrofits in order to improve fuel consumption. Uh, and about 15%, roughly, don't hold me to it, is really about data uh, and uh, performance optimization. And uh, so shipping companies have that opportunity to begin to address those low-hanging fruit. The challenge for shipping companies is going to be, aside from the external uncertainty, though, is the internal uncertainty. Because uh, you're now talking about cultural innovation. You're talking about, and you have to remember, most companies, not even shipping companies, in this day and age, as we move into digitization, they are vertically organized. And there's, no, there's a reason for that, because vertical organizations uh, prompt optimization. Okay, now you start to introduce data and you start looking at different types of decision making. That data runs horizontally. And that's going to be the challenge for, uh, I think, the shipping companies going forward. One more thing and then I'll, I'll, get, I'll let you go. In terms of who's going to pay for it, that's very interesting because in this new, uh, as we move forward, what the CII does, the, the, uh, the regulatory index, it brings us together. It, it forms relationships like we've never seen before. Not just, uh, not just the ship and the shore, okay, or the ship and the port, because you have to remember, port inefficiencies impact shipping uh, efficiencies and impact CII. Charter relationships are now part of this, governments and so forth. So, I, I think it's going to, uh, I, I think the, the uplift in cost somewhere along the line is going to be a team sport. It, is, it cannot be borne by the owner or by the industry. Uh, yeah, I think that's a, it can't be borne by the owner, can't be borne by the industry. I, th 
I mean, just to back up a little bit about some numbers, because I, I was looking at the um, numbers. There's 20, about 26,000 shipping companies um, at the moment, or where, about two or three years ago. Um, out of that, about 12,000 uh, only own one ship. I mean, they're not, not brass plate companies. These are like tugs, ferries, lots of little ones. And then you've got um, the average... Uh, company beyond, if you take out the one ship companies, has five and a half ships. Yep. And um, you talk about data. Okay, so um, that would be. I, I mean, of course, it is wonderful if you can if you can only measure the performance of your ships, the fuel consumption. You know, you're sitting there on your executive desk, and you've got your, you know, your data there for every ship. It's fuel consumption yesterday by hour. And the um, you know and what, what what the ratings were doing and you're tracking them all and, and endless information that's all very well but the trouble is if you let's say you've got 15 ships they're probably of 15 different ages 15, 15 different on onboard IT systems 650 different equipment manufacturers on each ship you know it and. I can see why the the companies struggle with. It. I know, you know, I've been when I talk to companies, people struggle with the digitalization, and the reason is not that they're not good at. Um, I mean, part of the reason is they haven't got much resources. But even when they've got resources, um, you know, you you try and measure fuel consumption, and you find that um, you can't decipher the data coming from half the fuel flow meters and those and in fact then you find out that, that half the flow meters are installed back to front anyway because uh, nobody had ever bothered to look and you know these the reality of running a fleet of ships so I'm, I, I mean I'm not going to extend this too long but you're you know you're in, in a wonderful position to judge this because you're I mean I never get close to the companies in this way uh, but how do you how do you build an organization that can run these fleets of old, given that the existing ships on the water right now are going to generate half the carbon between now and 2050? How can a company, what can you do as a company to actually make, get this fleet, these old fleets under control? Well, I think that uh, kind of if you if you look at this, so I think that going forward, first of all, at, at kind of a general level, I think size, a strong balance sheet, great charter relationships, and an understanding of the impact of technology on 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 your commercial business is going to make all the difference in the world. And when you look at the older vessels, because when you look at the outlooks, there will clearly be even, I mean, no one is going to stop building uh, even uh, fuel oil vessels now. We expect those to be built, you know, as we move into the 2030s and so forth. You're going to have to look at things like, and really take an eagle eye and look at things like uh, energy efficiency and, quite frankly, onboard carbon capture in order, because you can't build enough ships to magically change uh, the global fleet. So retrofits are going to be really important. You're going to have to figure out uh, what makes sense relative to the risk profile of your business. But I think these are the things that are going to happen. I, I actually believe in going forward that uh, decisions in, the, in, uh, in, in, the, in our industry 
are the commercial decisions are going to be more than just a historical reading supply and demand. It's actually going to be reading the technology and being able to take the risk, a calculated risk, with partners, with charterers and so forth, in order to move this, uh, move this forward. Um, I, I, I completely um, yeah, agree with that. I think that, in a way, one of the things that's a bit unnerving about, you know, I get around more of these things than most people, and one of the things that gets a bit unnerving is that we keep talking in circles, that you have the same discussion again and again and again. And yet, actually, um, when you look at the technology, supposing I say, well, you know, there's, not, there's no difficulty in figuring out, there's no, there's no deadline to do something within very, very quickly because the technology is, you know, the things you can do quickly like order a dual fuel engine, that's not really a very mission critical decision. Um, what you have got is a breathing, following your line of thought, perhaps what we've got now is a breathing space of three or four years where company can sit down and figure out how they get alongside cargo, to take your first point, how they deal with retrofitting and some sort of program for their ships. And in retrofitting the ships, they, they really learn a lot more about the nuts and bolts of what works. So when they come to order the ships, they, they actually have that knowledge in the company, not with the shipyard, because the shipbuilders... You know, shipbuilders build ships. They know most of them don't, don't go to sea. You know, not, not that I'm aware of. <laughs> so, um, and then the the risk profile. You, so you could say, well, we've got a a breathing space to plan and look at the problem strategically and start to build the resources. Perhaps get in the technical build, train people, take in young. You know, half a dozen young graduates are dirt cheap compared with running a VLCC. You know. I mean, that's uh, and, uh, a fraction of the, the way interest rates have gone up. So, um, I, I mean, is that, a, is that a route that a company could sensibly follow? Um, you, know, you, you don't have to order ships immediately, do you? No. I would say, Martin, that it, that makes, I mean, listen, it makes all the sense in the world. We, what you're really looking at is kind of a measured state. Companies are going to have to put together short games, mid games, and long games because uh, you've got a technology readiness timeline that is built on that. We talk a lot about technology, but by the way, getting back to people is very important. People are actually going to be the real heroes going forward because technology has no sense of humor, no common sense, no instincts. It's people. And we never talk enough about people and the investments that companies need to make in people. But when you look at the fuels, it's very interesting. So, you know, we're, we're kind of in a short game right now. You know, IMO has given us kind of signposts that allow us to kind of uh, uh, put some clarity around kind of what mid-games and long-games are. And obviously now, from a fuel point of view, the entire conversation is about what's going on in the internal combustion engine, whether it's, uh, whether it's methanol, ammonia, LNG, or biofuels. Uh, and that's okay, because that's a natural starting point. Uh, this is going to transition, and it will eventually move, uh, as we see this, to methanol will go from gray to green, ammonia will go from gray to green. LNG will go to synthetic LNG. 
Biofuels I'm not so sure about because a lot of times I feel that uh, we're competing against humanity when it comes to biofuels uh, relative to its availability and its scalability. But when you look at, and then, and then you've got electrification on one end and you've got nuclear on the other end if you're looking at kind of, uh, uh, you know, kind of that, that, that family of, of potentials uh, along this timeline. And when someone asked me once, what did, what did I think was the absolute key hurdle moving forward? I get it. Collaboration, cooperation, working together, and so forth. But you cannot get from gray methanol to green, you cannot get from gray to green without the cost of the electrolyzers being reduced. That to me is fundamentally probably the most important thing. And that's where nuclear comes in because actually I, I see nuclear not so much on a ship but on a, on, a F, on a platform somewhere generating clean hydrogen uh, because you're going to need that. Even if you want synthetic LNG, you need to have access on a scalable level to hydrogen. So um, the two big things that I look at, and it's going to be interesting to see which one moves faster, is how, how, how quickly can you reduce the cost of the electrolyzer, and then how quickly can you reduce the cost of onboard carbon capture. Because if you can't reduce the cost of the electrolyzer fast enough, then you're into carbon capture, and then you go from gray to blue to green, rather than from gray to green. I think there's there's two there's two different issues here. When you when, the trouble with the green fuel is when you get onto green fuel, it's it's the bad news and the bad news and the bad news. Basically, that basically green fuels are pretty rubbishy compared with heavy fuel oil when it comes to actually performance. I mean, they they've all got downsides. You know, if you if you have, if you it's bad enough having a heavy fuel oil spill in a port, but it's not so good news having an ammonia, uh, if the wind's in the wrong direction, you can wipe out half a town, you know? Um, and the energy content, cryogenic, um, et cetera, et cetera. The, the green fuels, the, the first thing is they're not, not really very, they're not a step forwards, they're a step, maybe a step side, probably a step backwards. As for an industry, going from heavy, from fossil fuels to green fuels is a step backwards, I would argue. The, um, uh, the, the, the next um, step in that is, or the next bit of bad news is, they're going to cost you two or three thousand dollars a ton. You know, we're paying five hundred dollars a ton in Rotterdam last last week. Uh, three thousand dollars a ton. I mean, this changes the whole economics of the business. I mean, really, everything. When you, I mean, I've got a little model that does it, and believe me, everything changes when you do that. Um, and. Even if that wasn't bad news, bad enough news, that's two bits of bad news. Well, you know, I always specialize in the bad news. <laughs> the third bit is, don't worry, because you're not going to get the green fuels anyway. <laughs> because, the, I mean, we're all going for cars, right? Every, any, if there's anyone here from a country that isn't converting to electric cars, put your hand up, you know? Um, well, I'll take it that there isn't anybody, but that's, that's the plan. The trouble is that the, um, I mean, last year, the energy content of gasoline was half world electricity production. So actually, if you move the uh, motor cars out of fossil fuels into electricity, 
uh, into batteries, you're going to have to increase your electricity production by 50% just to cover that. No growth, nothing else. And, um, you know, that's just beginning. The, um, uh, you know, the, we feed the world by ammonia, which increases the yields four, five, six times. And there is nothing, if you take away the ammonia, there is nothing, nothing left. I mean, I've just been working with lice in Hamburg who, who shipped guano, which was the big thing before ammonia. And so I, th I think, you know, there's, first of all, this leads on to the fact that in the end, I would totally agree with you, nuclear is, if we could get nuclear, it would be a, a a real step forward for the industry, if you can get that on ships. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I tend to be a little bit uh, more optimistic, Martin. Uh, <laughs> well, my feeling is, someone's got to. Listen, we can put a man on the moon. We can solve this problem. I'm, I'm uh, you know, uh, but again, it gets back to kind of the. I, actually, I mean, net zero by 2050. Has that train has left the track. I mean, that train has left, not the track, that train has left the station, excuse me. So we have to move in that direction. Um, and uh, I think the next five years, maybe eight, are going to kind of tell the story uh, relative to, and again, the biggest, you got three boundary, I always go back to those boundary conditions, availability and scalability of fuel. Uh, that has not been sorted out yet. Again, because of the cost of the electrolyzers, the, uh, you know, what's that air cover to get you there? I mean, retrofits and carbon capture kind of give you some air cover as you kind of develop the economics of, this, of these families of fuels. I think, I think uh, what I do know is I think you are not gonna, you're not gonna be a dimensional fuel. It's gonna, it's gonna be kind of different fuels for different kind of, uh, quite frankly, for probably different types of ships, different types of rate, uh, trade routes, even different types of risk profiles. Uh, I think the safety problem, which is the other boundary condition, uh, will sort itself out. I mean, we're looking right now at ammonia. I mean, when you look at uh, kind of innovation in general and you look at, you know, okay, this is where innovation really, really kind of begins to uh, step in because, you know, at, at, you know, bottom line is you ask yourself, what do you do when the problems are real, the stakes are high, time is short, abstract answers are inadequate, you know, industries innovate. Um, the ammonia issue with toxicity, I think uh, with all the work that's being done, quite frankly, by all the class societies, by the Merce McKinney Center, by, by industry, by the shipyards, I think you will see some innovation. Quite frankly, I expect to see unmanned engine rooms. Uh, as you, I, was, I would see greater autonomy being brought forward and you look into, this, uh, into these new alternative fuels going forward. One thing we don't talk a lot about, and we should talk more about, is infrastructure. Infrastructure is really, really important. And this is where, you know, again, when I said that CII brings things together, CII will bring not just the ships together, but they will bring ships and ports together, okay? Uh, uh, and uh, infrastructure will bring, you know, is, is uh, you know, in, in a lot of ways is, is interesting because it's, uh, at least where I come from in the States, it's a great example of a public-private uh, partnership, but you will need uh, infrastructure. So you, you will, I see the building blocks moving, uh, 
I will tell you, I'll pick up on one point. It's very interesting when you talked about the cost of fuel. I, I asked myself, again, I'm, a, I'm not an economist, I'm not a ship owner, I'm just a simple naval architect, but when you look at the, at the importance of the cost of fuel and what it could be in the run-up, you may actually see the shipping model, business model change from what it is traditionally today, which is a focus on asset value. That's how ship owners make their money to an, um, another focus on what is the fuel contract value relative to the vessel that you have. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, especially when you look at things like green corridors starting to come in, long-term fuel contracts and so forth. I mean, so many interesting things. Uh, I mean, I will clearly be fishing by the time all this gets sorted out. Uh, but. <laughs> But, oh, I'm uh, to be fishing too, actually. <laughs> but I, I think that uh, you know this is what will drive the innovation. The industry has always been able to innovate, both uh, technically and commercially, ad ad adapt to market. So I think, I think we will see uh, this story play out. I, yeah, yeah I, um, I, I don't disagree with any of that. So I, th I think. Um, I guess the going, you know, picking up on my doom and gloom thing. I wasn't really being doom and gloomy, but um, the I've got a granddaughter who's five years old. Can't be that. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah. So um, if you, um, but one of the things I do is I plug all this stuff through. I have an enormous spreadsheet model I set up about five years five years ago. I was doing a presentation for Worcester up in um, Tromso, and the. Um, the, the, the benefit of spreadsheets is that they don't tell you anything about the future, but they tell you what doesn't add up. And when I plug in my, I personally don't think the industry's gonna get a sniff of green, much green fuel. I think there's just so many heavyweights out there that, uh, that are on land and the distribution's difficult. So I think it's a fair assumption you don't get much green fuel. You get some. Uh, uh, and you get a lot of it in the short sea trades and electric ships. I think there you're into a different story. So what do you do if you don't get the green fuel? And actually, what that does when you run it through is you, it suddenly it becomes... I mean, in a, innovation is about making things work that don't work at the moment, but will work soon. It can be made to work. And the one you've mentioned it already, carbon capture... Suddenly, I find the only way you can bridge that enormous gap between running down the carbon the way that IMO wants us to and the rather marginal amounts of green fuel is that you build a lot of ships with carbon capture and you retrofit, as you said, carbon capture. And I don't, this is not, I mean, you're the naval architecture. But I, my, my, I'm an economist, and I say if you give a ship owner the chance to make $10 million, then uh, you'll, you'll buy the kit, you know, and yeah. you'll find a way to fit it on the ship. I, 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 no. <laughs> There's a fire. Is there a fire, Nicholas? We're done? <laughs> <laughs> We're just getting started. <laughs> okay. oh, oh, dear. <laughs> okay. So, Good. Well, supposing we don't stop. No. <laughs> we'll take this outside. <laughs> or I'll tell you what, we could go out and start again out there, you know. <laughs> well, look, with these two gentlemen, we could really spend so much more time together. <laughs> Thank you so much. I mean, this has been an amazing... <laughs>
discussion. Thank you so much, and again, forgive me for... Uh,